Welcome to Sin City with Nick Menezes and Dane McLean. Live chat about everything cinema, from new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you movie lovers. Live for CMRU.ca. And now, to the men behind the mic. Episode of Sin City. This is your co-host Dan McLean. This is Nick Menezes. Very special guest today, Rico T. Allen. Welcome to the show. Hello, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Really great. Vidi well, Rico. Vidi well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, what is it? Video (laughs) expression. Yeah. I forgot to say it, but yeah, I I know I I messed that quote up. That's an Assassin's Creed thing. Ooh, and you've made it just in time, because we will be discussing the 50th anniversary of one of the most influential films ever, and a personal favorite of Dane's, A Clockwork Orange. So, on to you, Dane. So, we all, to those who don't know, A Clockwork Orange is, Dane considers it to be his number one movie. And tell me, Dane, why is that? Like, not to say, like, it's a very great choice, but there are so many amazing films out there. Why is it that made A Clockwork Orange your number one spot, Dane, my man? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, so, yeah, I wouldn't consider it my favorite of all time. Like, it's, it's not an easy movie. It's not something I'd watch you know, every few months even, but I've seen it, I've seen it once and uh, I think that was enough. I don't think I need to see it again, but I, I still will one day, but um, it's just even one viewing, I kind of, I felt like uh, you can tell so many other movies, music videos, and just multimedia projects in general have been inspired and influenced by it. You can, you can really see how it's uh, influenced on a sort of, crossed over into so many different things so I feel like for that reason alone it's sort of an influential film I think it deserves consideration of being one of the best films of all time mm-hmm. and also for its uh, I think the controversy surrounding it was pretty interesting that it really like bothered a lot of authoritative governments around the world like I think a number of them banned it from the country for a number of years so mm. obviously it did something well enough if a lot of governments were, you know, that were kind of police states were considering it to be sort of dangerous to uh, sort of uh, spread within their society. Maybe people start, would start thinking differently about authority. So I think for that reason alone, like it's, it's one of the most impactful films of all time. And my answer might change like in six months about what, which film is maybe the best of all time. But I think like from an objective point of view, uh, I think it is potentially, it could be one of the best films of all time. Mm-hmm, yeah, and, and good timing as well, because no, no more than towards the end of 2020, A Clockwork Orange recently made it on the AFI, the American Film Institute, for being one of the most culturally significant films ever made. That's just, wow, it took 50 years, but it made it. It really made it. Just, wow. It's amazing, really. Yeah, and... Like, yeah, a, a clockwork, and to your point, then, yeah, you were right, because A Clockwork Orange was very controversial. It inspired so many, like, copycat crimes that Stanley Kubrick had to withdraw the film from the UK, and it wouldn't, it would stay that way until his untimely death in 1999. So, yeah, it's really, really chilling stuff, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I, did, I wasn't aware of the, that issue at all, but that is interesting. I didn't know that it actually influenced uh, copycat crimes. That's, that's pretty dark, but I mean, the film is so heavy. I mean, people always twist art. You know, there's always some, some individual that doesn't interpret it, I guess, in a positive way, which is unfortunate, but I, I feel like it does have an impactful uh, message overall about the abuse of the, the power and authority. I think that's mm. the most impactful, the, the lasting impact it's had true. in society, yeah. Oh, yeah, very true. I mean, uh, if I'm not going to interject, uh, I will tell you right now that when you're talking about A Clockwork Orange as a cultural phenomenon, the, the biggest thing about the film I can tell you right now is that it's still, it's still controversial. It's still controversial to day. Because um, people still look at it as, you know, people looking at the whole concept of, oh, um, this is this is glorifying rape culture. This is glorifying um, ultraviolence. And I was like, well, the point of it is to highlight ultraviolence as, because here's the, here's the thing I, will, I, wanna, I wanna add as a diatribe to it is that when you're talking about Alex, and, and Alex is really used as a vehicle, because even though he's the narrator, he's the main character, quote unquote, protagonist, the thing about it is, he is not made to be a likable character. He's not, but he's charming. The thing about, and, and I want to highlight the fact that it, uh, Stanley Kubrick really did, uh, he really did put the bigger scope on the fact that Alex, even though he is a rebel rouser, he goes out, he, he's out with his gang, you notice he's cultured to a certain degree. He's very cultured, which goes back to the old aristocrats of, of Europe. These people were cultured, and yet they were monsters. Like, and, and, and it goes to that gripe of him uh, hitting uh, Dill when the lady was singing um, uh, uh, Ludwig, um, Ludwig, Ludwig's Knife, and he hit him, and he was like, you know, he said, you know, act like you can, you can conduct yourself accordingly, even though they do horrendous, horrendous things out in the world when no, under the cover of the night. It's still that facade of we are still eloquent gentlemen. You cannot touch us. We are high society, but we don't have to. Well, we have to present ourselves as high society around high society, but yet we're still lower rung people. You know that, and, and him being the vehicle for which of saying. You know, just that one instance of him saying, whoa, you don't step on Ludwig. You know, you don't step on Beethoven. And it's just that and it's that one piece of music that strikes him. But the thing about it is, Alex is not really that sophisticated of a person, ultimately. I mean, he is, but he isn't. So like I said, he's not made to be likable, but the complexity of the character is that you look at him like, oh, you feel bad for him. And then at the end, but then you, you're, you really don't. Exactly. He was a tool, ultimately. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. And, and in fact, now that you mention it, that's when the, the title kicks in, because A Clockwork Orange, because Alex is A Clockwork Orange, because if you think about it, according to the, the author himself, um, Alex Burgess, he says that it's basically something that is organic on the outside, but inside it's all mechanical. That is what Alex became once the government basically used him as as their tool. Yes. Yes, and if, if you pay close attention to how Alex manipulates that beforehand, like even before he gets into the government's hands, when his counselor comes to talk to him, you kind of, uh, you pick up on that. He was like, oh, I've done no wrong. 
and he's he's manipulating the idea of him putting on a facade, which is the first parts of the mechanical pieces coming into place, even though he's still organic while doing it, the facade is becoming more mechanical. And then if you notice as time goes on, he has to play the part in order to get what he wants. And when he doesn't get what he wants, the real him comes out, such as the uh, interrogation scene. Mm-hmm. That's right. That showed him. They showed him like, oh, 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 you, you, he's like, I've done nothing. And then when they called him on it, he, he saw some mother, you know, <laughs> he's still on his face. <laughs> That's right, yeah. That's true, yeah. Like, I, That's one thing that I really cement Stanley Kubrick as one of the best. I really appreciate his very attention to the tiny details and also the symbolism. Good lord, the symbolism is just wow. Like, let's talk about the opening scene, for example, the, the Korova bar. Like, that is yeah. fine symbolism. Nick, you know, we talked about, I, I went on a, a tirade, uh, I don't know if you told Dane about it, uh, I went on a tirade about just how I, I'm in love with the old, like the old school aesthetic, right, from the 70s, like 60s, 70s. Uh, I love that that mute palette, Pascal, uh, uh, Pascal, um, uh, that Pascal um, way of putting the uh, aesthetic around it and how it just... It just it, it, it transcends or transcends how you look at films in that time. He was able to use these palettes in such a manner for you like you you just pick up on everything in the room and yet you still miss everything. It, it's like it's like you miss the forest for the trees. If you pay close attention to the opening the opening part, right, and you see how everything is moving but not moving. Mm-hmm. It's like a moving portrait, and you're just like. Holy, holy shit! This is this is crazy. Just just the whole landscape and then the decor, like how women are used in this universe. How like in this this dystopian future, how the objectivity objectivity of women, mm-hmm. it, uh, like how they got the like they, they the, uh, even the furniture has female heads. They're 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 um they're naked mm-hmm. and it's it's, uh, it's ascending the the female aesthetic. But then they got their feet on it. Like yeah, yeah, and it's kind and it's kind of um, foreshadowing as well. There's a lot of foreshadowing in the beginning part too, because you have all of these uh, these ivory busts of women out, and then what happens in the beginning when he's like, "We're gonna go for the good old in and out, in and out." That's right, yeah, and even yeah, and the fact that the women they're literally plastic, they're literally objects, literally and figuratively, yeah. and the fact that they drain you know milk they're draining milk from their those figurines like it's basically like a mockery of innocence because when we think of milk sometimes we think of you know babies of fertility but yeah. now that innocence is basically being corrupted by these by these teenagers these hoodlums yes <laughs> so, yeah. and it really it really does a good job of establishing the world, that the cruel, brutal world of a clockwork orange. It's even the next scene, the the old man, the 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 homeless man they beat, he even says it that it's a stinking world because there's no law and order anymore, because it lets the young get onto the old. Yes, yes. And the thing about the movie subverting the perspective, 
because uh, I don't think people understand about the movie is, is not to highlight ultraviolence, because whether people know it or not, even though the book came first, Stanley Kubrick was able to visualize what was going to happen today. Because the thing about satire, satire blows up the, the small details, and you're like, that's not true. Oh, wait, 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 okay, that is kind of true. And you blow it up and you see the bigger perspective, the micro the microorganisms that we are as human beings, Stanley Kubrick was able to put that vision to today because even in today's society, like I'm not gonna go on a big tirade about being, you know, feminism and things of that sort, but just the violence itself, how we have essentially we've essentially uh, made it almost secondhand. It's nothing for you to go stick somebody, you know, go uh, shank someone. It's it's nothing for you to be able to fight back as 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 quickly and as effectively as possible. But the thing about it is, it's the idea of gang mentality while doing it. Because what Stanley Kubrick was able to do is, he was able to take the the early 1700s London, right? And then take modern day London and combine them and layer them on top of each other through a lens that's the future. And you're like, what? And they say, if you don't learn from the past, what do you, what do, you do? Do them to repeat it. Did he was able to do that, and then today it's the same thing. The same way that we look at Alex through a lens of, oh, this dude is sick, but he's cultured. What is America essentially? I, I, I live here in America. It wants to be, it's a sick place, but yet it's so cultured, right? Yeah. <laughs> like America. <laughs> that's, that, that, and, and that's the way Kubrick was able to film it, even though it's set in a different, a different, um, setting it still transcends the environment because you could set that anywhere and somebody would be like yeah that's that's fucking ridiculous and that right there is exactly why at Clockwork Orange, and surprisingly for us it still remains relevant even 50 years later and now that you mention yeah, yeah. it now that I, I, when watching A Clockwork Orange, I couldn't help but draw. It has similar parallels to an, a more recent film, uh, 2019's Joker. You know, how they both show the ugliness of society and they have a main character who we should or should not root for in the same film. Like, they're both similar films as I see it, basically. They, they basically show that we, society, are the villains. There is no good guy in the, in, in the movie. Mm -hmm. There is none. Because, uh, oh, well, we, I, I'll, I'll save that. I'll save that. I, I, can't, I can't say it just yet. But there, because it, it's, about, it's about the two scenes. But there is no good guys. There is none. Mm -hmm. And even if you look at um, a certain dynamic between him and his friends, you notice Alex is a little bit older than they are. Mm -hmm. And if you pay close attention to how Alex treats them, they're nothing more than paper soldiers for him. You know, that's what they are for him. They, it, it's, it's a big sandbox and everything is his plaything, even his friends. That's right. Which, which goes into that sociopathic, oh, man, you are dumb. You're somewhat sharp. You're kind of dumb, but I'll keep you around. You know, the Joker thinks like that. Oh, Holly, I'll keep you around just to keep the bats off my back. You know, it's the same thing. It's yeah. the same thing. That is, wow. Very perceptive, Rico. And now you mentioned it because there's this question I want to ask you guys because, you know, 
a, a Clockwork Orange place with this old saying, sympathy for the devil, because in, throughout the film's runtime, I felt like, in a way, just in a strange, I have strangely felt some kind of, you know, a bit of sympathy for Alex, despite knowing the fact that he is, you know, well, a murderer and a rapist, but is it, you know, is it wrong to, you know, feel, for the audience in general to feel bad about that something happening to that kind of person? That's a that's a great question, Nick. I think um, well, I, I think the movie does a good job of. I mean, like, uh, I think it's natural as a person to feel feel bad for any character on screen that is suffering in some way, and I mean, he eventually does suffer in the film. So I feel like I feel like it, it, I think the intention is to definitely play on the emotions of the audience to make you to really to question that, like you like you've questioned. I think that's um, something Kubrick does a great job of is of just basically completely making us doubt and question our own uh, morals and our own sort of what we accept and consider wrong in real in real life and also in film and what we kind of uh, champion or promote by sort of uh, like engaging and participating in sort of like as, a, as an audience member in watching violent films I think I think Kubrick has done that in a lot of his movies mm-hmm. he definitely right. he's kind of questioning the viewer's intentions behind watching films that do depict such movies, right oh I'm sorry my dog is waking up <laughs> And, yeah. You definitely you leave the experience feeling like sick, like that's you don't you don't leave it feeling like oh that was uh, like you don't you don't feel like like a Tarantino movie, but like the violence is kind of cartoony or whatever. It's actually like it makes you feel really like bothered and disturbed for many days afterwards. So uh, I do think that's that's the best part of this movie is that it does change you on some level and you don't maybe you won't look at violence the same way in films ever again oh no not at all like now that you I want great insight by the way then really great insight like now that I think about it what what if this is just a what if scenario but what if maybe neither one of the characters were not supposed to sympathize with any of them because this isn't like a film with who's right or who's wrong I feel this more of a cautionary tale, wouldn't you guys say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. More. Yeah. I guess, I guess um, the cautionary tale, like I said, Alex is a vehicle. Because what happens when you give into the most sensationable parts of yourself as a human being? You, you know, where you, you can you take what you want, ask no questions, without question. Everything is for you. The world is your oyster. You uh, go into a bit of a a psychosis of of how you look at the world because ultimately, like like you said, there is no good. Like I said before, there's no good. There's no mighty as good. There is no good guy. Alex sympathizing with Alex. If you sympathize with Alex, okay, you're a rape apologist, right? Automatically. Now, the cruel part is when Stanley Kubrick does the. Now, he's he's cured. But if you're perceptive enough, you know good damn well Alex is not cured. Like, from two perspectives. He's not cured on the human perspective, and he's not cured on the psychological perspective. Oh, no. Because of one perspective, he 
was trying to manipulate his way to get out early so he can go back to doing what he did. And then on the psychological perspective, it was forced and obviously it's something that's being, you know, mind melding and manipulating, which by the government. So there is no good in this situation at all. No. And it also uh, Alex plays up to another trope of real life when what do we do when we re rehabilitate people mm -hmm. from right? Now, a person like Alex who has done more than just murder someone, if you actually look at Alex's rap sheet, the dude is a rapist, a murderer, uh, you know, a hoodlum beyond measure. You would keep behind bars damn to 14 years is keep them. But the problem is the, the system They'll keep people in for petty crimes because they're petty and they'll keep them in for petty crimes instead of letting them get a proper court date. And then someone else like Alex, they're like, well, he's a special case because you can always send him back out and he perpetuates to turn the world inside out. And then the police basically create the cure by going back out to pick up more people like Alex because Alex is a plague. It's the Simon Phoenix effect. If you know anything about Demolition Man, it's Simon Phoenix effect. You take somebody that's terrible and you put them back out on the street and then they terrorize everything, but you're not going to try to catch them, but you're going to catch people associated or doing something close to it so you can build your numbers. It's basically, um, it's a banana republic at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, you, like you the, first oh, yes. I think, like uh, Rico was saying, yeah, like it's like the uh, prison industrial complex, right? Like they made a business out of uh, basically arresting people uh, for petty crimes and uh, yeah, kind of lumping them in with the, the real dangers, right? Like the people that actually are doing the, the, the horrible things uh, and how it is just a cycle. Once you're in it, there's little chance of ever really escaping it, right? And, and so you're perpetuating that that society by not, you know, by sort of being this like hyper authoritative government. Like, I think it's, I think it's pretty interesting, like kind of ironic that, uh, yeah, the countries where it was banned, I know there were a number of other countries. I think it was also, it was banned actually here in Canada and Alberta until, oh, really? I don't know what year, but we were like an interesting outlier and it was like Alberta and like Newfoundland, I think. Which we're not, we, we're authoritative governments. But there's interesting, like, a lot of the countries that did ban them were, like, under police state governments, like, I think Brazil at the time, and uh, uh, a number of other countries. But it's just, it's, it's interesting how governments reacted to it and, and why certain governments might have been more afraid of this movie than others. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I'll find, like, an actual list of all of the countries that banned it at the time, but. Some are more liberal, some are maybe more of a far-right government, authoritative government. So it's, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> what do you guys think, like, as far as it's, do you think it had justification for being banned at all? Or do you think that that was a huge overstep? Hmm. You, you, you go first, Rico. Um, well, we're talking about government. Being that I live in a place where everybody's always complaining about big government, big government, the thing that you have to put into play is the government is going to do what it needs to do to protect itself. It's an institution. It, it's made to protect itself, insulate itself. Even though it's made, it's supposed to be for the people, 
ultimately, governments do not want people having freedom of thought beyond just here. We're like, you know, if this is if this if this is the middle piece to the top, and the top is here, that's not it's not much to get to. So they're going to keep you right there, just at the threshold. But something like this being banned in both liberal and conservative countries, it, it, it shows you the fear of, okay, was it banned in conservative countries because the, or the authoritative countries because they don't want people to uprise and have a mentality like, okay, well, let's do what Haiti did. Let's do what Nat Turner did. Let's do what any person would want to do. Let's do what, um, what uh, Gaspar Yanga did. When those people start coming, to, or Guy Fawkes, for those who know about, you know, um, know about England and the, uh, Guy Fawkes trying to blow up Parliament, anything that is anti-government is not bad inherently. But the thing about it is, government thinks it's bad, obviously, because government needs to keep its control. Liberal governments were probably afraid because oh, we don't want people out here just raping everybody all willy-nilly. Because a lot of times, with a lot of liberal governments, in some cases, is they treat the they treat the citizens as children, not as you know, citizens, mm-hmm. almost like we know what's good for you. So take take this pill, take this Zan, Citizens Kane. You know, take this. And and if you look at the movie, even in the movie, they kind of address that. Like uh, when they when uh, he's talking about we go get the milk. Now, what does the milk represent? Right, the milk is a combination of drugs that keep you keep keep you pumped up on you know on adrenals. It keeps you keeps you. It's not just milk. It's something else in it that keeps you riled up. So the government is obviously producing a chemical to keep the people riled up so they can keep, up, you know, keep coming down hard with the hammer. So I'm not kind of went along with that, but the point is government is always going to do what's in government's interest, regardless, damn be the people. Let them eat cake. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's... Yeah, and I think, yeah, like it's a similar sentiment to the whole issue of uh, certain societies' governments wanting to ban violent video games, uh, mm-hmm. claiming that it inspired more violence, where I think it's obviously much, it's a much deeper problem in countries than just, you know, artistic works that have violence that might inspire a teenager, or they're worried that that'll happen, right? I think there's, there's obviously far more uh, pressing issues that cause crime poverty, inequality, um, huge ones, right? So it's, it's interesting that, like, I'm looking at here, um, yeah, it was banned in apartheid South Africa, and uh, police, the police state that was in Brazil at the time, where as it was pretty much released without any trouble with censors uh, in the United States, Germany, France, Italy, Japan, and Australia. So kind of an interesting perspective to take there that, you know, some countries this was totally okay, there was no problem with it being screened in theaters in some countries, that were particularly under, particularly under some pretty heavy government oppression, were pretty reluctant, reluctant to screening this. I think this says a lot about I think, the film yeah. and, its, and its place. I think it's sort of interesting perspective to keep, I think. Mm-hmm. What's up, what's up, so you say, man? Well, um, something I wanted to say, um, when Dior to your previous statement that you know the government treats the its citizens as children like i feel that that is also another 
point in a clockwork orange, you know, how the, the between, and also regarding the youth versus all that was prevalent in the, the late 60s and early 70s, because during that time of, you know, the, the late president um, Richard Nixon, he saw the, us, the youth, as if we were a threat, you know, he considered stuff like the sex, uh, violence, smoking, cigarettes, the so hippie movement, rock and roll, to be considered a threat to the status quo. And I feel a clockwork orange, it shows that side. And it even said the old man who they were beating up says that it lets the young get onto the old. I feel I was taking a jab at the Nixon administration that existed during the making of a clockwork orange. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sad that America is so infamous but I can't. I feel bad that I can't even quote anything from any of any of your leaders. That and it really, I feel bad because we're not taught these things. We we American exceptionalism, and you're right. The whole thing about the young eating the old, right? I'm gonna tell you something. The fallacy within that, even though it happened in the movie, right? Subverting the um, the trope of sorts, which is something Stanley Kubrick is very good at doing, like. Not every, not every um, director can subvert a trope and land it right on the head. Because with, with that, that example you just gave, subverting the trope in order to highlight what the other person is doing or what the other side has done is something that's very difficult to do. And seeing that Nixon, piece of garbage, may he rest in hell, um, seeing that Nixon himself, you know, administered most of what is detrimental to, to black people in America, I know that all too well, but the thing about it is, is that when you when you have an oppressed people such as black people in America galvanize other groups of people around us, and then that that starts to gain traction. Nixon noticed that, and he was like, "Oh hell no, we gotta break this up," because when people start talking in the sense of the youth eating the old and a clockwork orange, that hyper that uh, that 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 uh, ultra violence. And the the use the use of sex as a as an outlet versus it being something pleasurable, it subverted very well because Nixon wanted everybody to be like the 1950s. You know, your wife is at home, you're out there work at the factory, you come back home, you have your two kids, a white picket fence, and a goddamn dog. That is the American dream. We don't need you people smoking smoking reefer and 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 screwing whoever you want, especially a lot of interracial couples at the time as well. So we don't want that. We don't mm -mm, no, we don't need that. We need to keep this as ever as possible, keep them niggers over there and keep them white hippies knowing their place and let them fall back in line because that's really what it is. And then back to the movie as as a whole, what does Alex do? Like I said, he is a tool. He is a vehicle for which we are just he is a representation of everything we teach about you know, um, teach about the youth abusing their power, they're abusing their youthfulness um, against the old, right? But the old abuse, they abuse their position that they hold over the youth a lot of times because they keep the youth in this childlike state, even when they're older. Like, oh, what, like you ever have older people say, do as I say, not as I do? Mm -hmm. We've heard the hypocrisy. They'll, they'll sit there They'll sit there, curse out everybody in the middle of a grocery store and then go to church on Sunday time. I pray to the Lord. <laughs> and tell you, like, they not do what they did at the store, but come, come to church and do what they say. That's, and that's what Nixon basically did. Yeah, I'm going to flood these neighborhoods with crack, 
cocaine and heroin, but hey, it's okay. My boys do it, but you can't do it. Hypocrisy is just... It's just heartbreaking, really. Yeah. And... I'm sorry if I'm long with it, man. I just, you know, it's, it's so many different threads. No, no, no worries, man. No worries. Fire away. Fire away. And yeah, um, and, some, and to answer your question b- before, Ding, on whether the controversy was justified or not, that one, first off, a very good question. And that's a bit of a, a zigzag, I say. Like, to your point, Rico, you were right. Like, the government really needs to look out for the interests of their own country because they are, in essence, the country. And the other is that, well, yes, A Clockwork Orange is indeed a very violent, an ultra-violent, if you will, film. It's, like, it's not like most of the movies that we receive today, you know, where they tend to glorify violence to the point it dis- we are desensitized. It's not violence for the sake of showing violence, because A Clockwork Orange, the violence, like we mentioned in our episode about the movie Drive, the violence, it serves a purpose in telling the story, in establishing the world of A Clockwork Orange, the cold, cruel, callous world our characters live in, I'd say. So it's not done for, you know, for shock value, you know, shocking for the sake of shocking. It's it's handled well and in a way that is, you know, more realistic and justified, I'd say. Uh, your thoughts, guys? I totally agree, yeah. I think that, yeah like, yeah, like I said, I, I watched it once. I don't think I need to watch it again because it was so impactful. Like, I, I would like to watch it again maybe to study it, like to watch specifically for, you know, how they treat color in the movie, how they treat, like, like look for symbolism within the movie. I probably probably wouldn't watch it, like, the same way I watched it the first time. If I was to watch it again, maybe analyze specific things uh, with a little bit more detail. But, uh, yeah, I feel like yeah, overall, I mean, the film, uh, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not glamorizing anything. And that's why, I think that's why it is so uh, effective. Um, like I said, like it's it disturbs you, and that's that's the that's the point. Like you, you wouldn't want this movie to just be like a fun uh, crime movie at all. No. that would be totally counterproductive. So no. it does its purpose, and I mean, it scares people that maybe don't understand the purpose of the violence in the movie. But if they realize that it's actually kind of promoting what they might want is what is like a more ethical society i'm sure people would realize this movie actually should be watched by everyone at least once but unfortunately it gets the the bad stigma kind of based on the the controversy a lot of time controversy happens before people have actually watched a film they kind of just you know they hear a few things about what what's in the film and they immediately want to censor it that's happened with a lot of films uh, Mm -hmm. in canada as well um because a lot of our films are funded by the Canadian government, the film board, so they have like kind of final say as to film, as to whether films should be even screened here or not. So a lot of times, like if there's a conservative government in power that doesn't agree with a certain topic before they've even watched it, they judge it, and it might actually be something they might agree with in the end, which is kind of the ironic part. But um, yeah, so I think it does a it does a really great job of that. Just um, uh, yeah, like Rico said, like. Uh, Alex is a tool, and I think the whole film should be taken as less, like in a, in a more uh, symbolic sense, and you shouldn't 
probably view these characters as like these are people you might encounter in the real world you probably would never encounter a character like, like any of these guys so exactly. definitely more of a, a metaphorical film it's than cool. anything yeah. around reality yeah like this is this is definitely not in like a, a pleasant or an enjoyable viewing experience but it does make for really good analysis and studying for sure in fact, I feel, I think we can all agree that A Clockwork Orange, it's a film that teachers should show their students at film class, I'd say. Oh, yes, definitely. Mm. I mean, just um, my little two cents, I think the, the thing with uh, Clockwork Orange is that everything in the movie is an analog for something. Everything is um, filtered through a lens of, okay, um, this character is one-dimensional for a reason, because not every character needs to be multi-dimensional. Mm -hmm. One, some characters serve their purpose as what they need to serve their purpose. But when you look at the overarching story, um, I don't think anyone should look at this film and say, man, I would love to watch that again. Dude, I watched it once when I was 18, and I did, I think, no, twice, because I, I, I did another overview of it, and I, didn't, I haven't watched it since. It's been 10 years since I watched it. Yeah, and I watched it last night just so I can kind of refresh myself, and I was like, "Holy hell!" I remember, oh god, I remember how uncomfortable I was watching watching it because I think if you don't feel uncomfortable in those moments, when and you guys know those moments, you know mm -hmm. when the rape in, uh, occurs, um, when they uh, invade the the writer's house, those those real tense moments, and you're just looking like, what you're just like, what what possessed you to. Because I, I think the thing that scared me the most about this film was that the closest thing to real life that I know this film for is really just being, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Southerner. If you know any, if you guys know anything about the United States South, the way that they moved, oh, we, we're familiar with that. So that's my perspective as, you know, like singularly, but as a film, as a, as a fi filming or a film buff, I guess, <laughs> um, the, the scope that Kubrick lays out for you is just so wide, but yet it's so accurate. Like I said, he is one of the few directors that has been able to landscape something so well, like a, like a portrait, and, um, and give it to you in a way where you looking at it, you're like, huh. Like you can watch these two, this, uh, two scenes uh, I'm, I'm not gonna go into them, Nick, 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 not yet. Not those two scenes, but it's two other scenes. The opening scene, right? When I say it's like a movie portrait, and then the scene where Alex is being tortured, and it pans down to, to the um, to the first floor of them torturing him with Beethoven. Mm -hmm. If you pay close attention to both of those scenes, right? What is the key thing that you've noticed in both of those scenes that are similar, even though they don't look exactly the same? What is the key thing you notice? It's it's the um, it's it's the it's the uh, idea of just content, the content in the characters. Notice when he was on top of the world, he got his feet up on the decor, the ladies and all that good stuff. He's just kicking back with his with his buddies. Content, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. And then you juxtapose that to him being tortured, and they're looking like, yeah, you piece of shit. We're gonna make sure. We're gonna make sure we're content too. And you see the other guy just playing. He's playing with the um, with the um, no, with the billiards, with the billiards. And then you see, and you, it's like a movie painting because um, Julian is sitting there like this, just not, not moving at all. 
but the only person that's really moving is uh, the, the the writer, and he's just yes, yes. sweet, sweet bliss. It is. In both, in, in, in both of those instances, and Kubrick was able to film those one from uh, 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 what is it, uh, panning out, outward shot. It went from a panning down shot. That's right. Yeah. In fact, that that scene where where Alex attempts to commit suicide, Kubrick he actually he threw a a, ca- a clockwork camera. Da- he literally shot a camera out the window in order to make the effect of Alex falling down. It it took knowing Kubrick and his fame his fame for basically shooting and reshooting pivotal scenes. That it actually took six six tries to shoot the scene where Alex kills himself and surprisingly the camera managed to survive all that yeah when they were constructed back in the day those things are heavy yeah and are you guys like and yeah like what the thing is like to your point Rico like not there is not a single character in this movie that is likable or sympathetic but why do we root for alex first of all hmm? well because while everyone in the movie is a complete scumbag alex if you come to think about it he knows he's a bad guy at least he admits it he's honest he knows he's a psychopath and he loves every minute of it and He's in a way human because he's honest about it. He knows exactly who he is. But these people, like the government, they're supposed to be like the good guys. But in re- they, in reality, they're just horrible people. Like notice how they, they are actually enjoying Alex's pain. You know, as he's being humiliated on stage after being, you know, uh, cured by the Ludovico technique. It really. And not to mention, in a way, in a hidden way, Beethoven would be considered a character in the movie because he is basically what makes Alex human. It's that part that humanizes Alex. And it also helps that Beethoven's music basically shows the beauty of humanity, you know, redemption, fraternity, family, finding love. What is it? Heavy horns and the devil's face. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad you said that because uh, that's what I was thinking when um when he um put on Beethoven when he was in his room by himself when playing with his snake. I was like, this dude sleeps with a goddamn snake with a constrictor. <laughs> First of all, in his bed. But when he put him on, I was like, oh, I said this is the most human you will ever see him be, other than other than when he uh, reprimanded them about his manners and that's almost like uh you play a good song that you like and you tell somebody be quiet this 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 little piece of music right he's not really cultured like i said he's just it's that one piece of music that he highlights that's what makes him feel cultured because he doesn't mention any other of beethoven's uh, uh, conceptions he doesn't talk about any of his other performances or any of his other uh, writings he just has that one but like you said that's what makes him human ultimately and he admits like kind of that he's a bad guy but just in a real weird roundabout way about it like one is like ah right, you had me like um kaiser Soze at the end of uh the usual suspects when the gift turns into a straight walk that's right yeah yeah like I, yeah not that like and not to mention the fact that <clears throat> 
that let's talk about that important theme found in a clockwork orange two words free will that a clockwork orange is basically about how this young man no matter good or bad it doesn't matter because he is being stripped of his autonomy like he's a puppet on a string like he's literally being dehumanized by the government and this reminds me of this quote that is from the priest that said that said alex which is that goodness comes from within and goodness is chosen and when a man ceases to choose that's when he ceases to be a man Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, I got I got I got to say what I have to say about that for later because it, it, it goes to the favorite scene part. Of course, yeah. sure. I'm like yeah, this <laughs> like it's basically Alex. He yeah, he does seize for a moment his violent ways, his appetite for sex and violence, but it's not of his own choice. He's literally being brainwashed by by these people by the government. And it really shows, like, I, and that's where the cautionary tale happens, which is you can't really change people. It is up to them, just them, to change themselves. And I think the Ludovico technique, the whole, that is, I think, what makes Alex sympathetic to the audience. That's when we start to actually root for this character we should not be rooting for. Right. Oh, um, there's a movie, one of my other favorite movies. Uh, it, a lot of people don't like it because it's easy. Demolition Man. Um, if you've ever watched Demolition Man, um, Edgar Friendly said something that's very profound. You can't take away people's rights to be assholes. And Martin Phoenix said the same thing as well. He said, he said, no matter how much you want to change society and all that shit, you can't take away people's rights to be assholes. You know, and, 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 and if you look at the way, if, if, if I could, I could just take away. A Clockwork Orange, just like I told you, Tron is the predecessor to the Matrix. A Clockwork Orange is a predecessor to Demolition Man because a Clockwork Orange, a Demolition Man is what happens when a Clockwork Orange, uh, the, the treatment becomes successful. And if you look at Demolition Man, everybody's all like, oh, you know, they're, they're so cultured, so polite, you know, good Joy Joy Day or whatever, all the weird shit they say in the movie. But the point is, you cannot take away people's rights to choose to be assholes. Free will. That's God given. And you have to, it's like, man, you almost sound like a God trying to dictate, as, a, as the government, dictate how people are um, reformed. And even though Alex is a scumbag, he still has every right to be a scumbag. Like it or not. That, that's, his, that's his God given right. But his, but. It's the consequences of being a scumbag. You know, the choice. The con- like, the consequence of choice. We can't choose to make everybody good. Choose exactly. to make everybody good just means you subjugate them. Exactly, yeah. And that's, and that is, you said uh, Alex was a machine. Well, another term I used to call Alex is that he is, in this story, the lesser of two evils. Because the government, if you compare the government and Alex, Alex, he is, well, he's obviously evil, but the government is obliviously evil. Like, they're supposed to be the good guys. They're evil without even knowing that they are. They're the bigger evil. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely shows how yes, yeah, like a sadistic, sadistic, 
authoritative uh, figure will just breed just like sadistic people, right? Like it's just uh, it's uh, and I feel like as far as like Kubrick's worries, like do you think I, I personally feel like this is sort of um, maybe concerns or fears over like a maybe return to fascism in Europe or mm-hmm. some sort. But what, what do you guys see as like sort of uh, Kubrick's main worry? his place in Britain at the time, like, um, I guess politically or socially, what would you say? Mm. Well, early 70s, late 60s. Well, I think basically showing that there's a shift in values because as we know, this was just the, the Clockwork Orange came out during the start of the 70s and the 60s before was, for the most part, a pretty innocent time, an innocent decade. But with the 70s, you know, it was basically, we, we had the, the IRA, there was massive unemployment, joblessness, recessions, especially with the rise of, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher during that time. So I feel that, and people were looking for ways to escape from those harsh times. And I think a clockwork orange might like trigger some kind of response to the harsh times the people were living in during the early part of the 70s, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Definitely. McCarthyism, you know, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of that, you know, played a big part in today. You know, post Red Scare, everything, you know, that plays into the, the tropes. Because, um, whether people know it or not, man, um, Europe itself, I mean, us us being North Americans, you know, we, we know all too well our history with the UK. We, we know our history with the United Kingdom, with, with Britain, with Britannia. Our history with them is always parallel in some form or fashion. Whether you want to put the UK here as our, our mother and then we're the children of the UK, I mean, it's... it's, it's it's true, and Kubrick, being a student of of history, more or less, he understood. Like, okay, the UK was pivotal in the '60s for style that affected North America as well. Like, cause we, cause the Beatles was big. That 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 continental exchange of music became a big thing too. Which is why, if you ever notice about Kubrick, he rarely ever puts any um big artist in any of his films like from those decades mm-hmm. he never puts an artist that was pivotal because it was I think it was skewer the way you look at the film a lot of his, his soundtrack or his composers use metallic um, what I call liquid metallic um, u- uh, usages because it gives you a real visceral feeling of the real world when you go out to the, the metro and to the subway it has, the environment is, is very much different so when you look at how Britain itself, if you think about 1960 Britain, what do you think about groovy blue glasses, like kind of like the ones I got on right now, which is a, which is kind of a a retro fit. It's it's pretty much a retro fit. It's something from back then, but I'm wearing it right now, right? These things influence the culture zeitgeist, whether we want to admit it or not. We are if we are affected, and we are we are we were. We were not as um, close then, but just imagine how big the cultural zeitgeist switched up and formed up when people started traveling more often with each other. Just then, and then think about now we're on we're on Zoom talking, like we're thousands of miles away from each other and we're talking right now. So Kubrick was able to see 
that perspective from old McCarthyism to Thatcher coming in being the Iron Lady and all that good shit, and then just just this 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 whole wave of hippieism that happened over in uh, Europe as well. Because United States hippieism started a little bit earlier than it did in, in the 60s. Oh, it started a little earlier in the 60s, but it transferred over into the UK later, like the uh, late 60s, early 70s, and it picked up steam really heavy, which is why a lot of your great rock bands came out in the 70s. Like they were playing, but they became who they were in the 70s in, from the UK. Mm-hmm. Wow. So. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just trying to thread the needle really well. Just, no, 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 it's a really, yeah. really interesting insight, really. I, I, I didn't even know that. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. Uh, well, I'm a history major, man. I got to know these things sometimes. Ooh, <laughs> nice, man. Congrats. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, too. Like, like you said, like Kubrick is, is an American, or he was an American, but uh, he, he kind of was adopted by Britain, I think, in some form, wasn't he? Like, uh, I don't know if he moved to London or... He, Yeah, I think he he moved to London or the UK for a while. So he was like he's you know American in England, but he would have had a lot of insight into both cultures. He would have seen how the, the two sides, the, the two continents, Europe and North America, could be influencing each other, and how they often do politically, socially, like you said. So that's really interesting because you know it is a British film, but made by an American director. So that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, to your point also, can, to continue with the the theme of music in a Clockwork Orange, like a Clockwork Orange, it's a good exercise, a good representation of soundtrack dissonance. Because when we see something violent, like a man being tortured by aversion therapy, or a woman being raped while her husband is helplessly watching, we think of violent, scary music like Jaws, but in A Clockwork Orange, we get singing in the rain and Beethoven music. It really it juxtaposes it it does it, the music doesn't fit with the scene and that makes it both terrifying and brilliant at the same time it's very ironic in every sense of the word i think i think kubrick did this to like like to show in a way more the to show more how the violence would be from you know our perspective or rather alex's perspective how alex sees the violence like it's a beauty it's a work of art to him which really shows how cultured he is how he sees violence as a form of art like the next michelangelo or mona lisa i'd say subvert like that subversion he is very good at it i mean take he basically took the nursery rhyme and flipped it flipped it inside out Because most nursery rhymes are fucking terrible. <laughs> you know, ring around the rosy, you know. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, nursery rhymes are real, are actually like cautionary tales, right? But what happens when you take the nursery rhyme and then you, you take the subject matter out of it and keep it where it is, but then you keep the jaunty tune going. So if Alex is the Black Plague, like I said, he's a tool. If he is the Black Plague, right, and then you take that ring around Rosie to I'm singing in the rain what is he going to do he's going to wreak havoc on everything around him while whistling Dixie right yeah that is that is true yeah and also it helps that that scene where he is doing the singing in the rain it was actually improvised by Malcolm McDowell himself yeah yeah wow and that's, and that's scary dude. I mean because um, 
If the Kubrick can keep it, that lets you know it's it's visceral. Kubrick being such an organic director, if an actor is able to pick up on that and feed off that energy, for him to improvise that, in a sense, you're like, oh, that, that, that's like a synergy that you can only, this God, this almost God given, you would have to pray to have that kind of synergy with someone, just in any instances of it. Mm, very true, yeah. In fact, Many, in fact, many of the greatest movie scenes we've seen have been improvised by many actors. Like kind of like the here's Johnny Line in The Shining, which also reminds me, much like The Shining and Stephen King's uh, reaction towards the film, Anthony Burgess, the author of A Clockwork Orange, he disliked uh, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of uh, his novel because A Clockwork Orange, it's it's mostly faithful to the novel except the ending. In fact, Stanley Kubrick changed the ending because to those who don't know, in, in the original novel, Alex was, he was really cured from his violent urges, but in the movie, he reverts back to his old habits because Kubrick felt it would be, you know, boring and it wouldn't fit with the theme they were going for. You know, that how therapy, the, the futility of therapy, of uh, psychology. Mm. Well, force therapy, therapy, if anything. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, yeah, like, uh, definitely, I don't know Kubrick's thoughts on, on like, the healthy version of therapy, but <laughs> definitely like to this like the extreme version. Yeah, the, yeah, it's clear what his opinion was on that. Yeah, I, I guess in my opinion, like not that we, you know, that Cooper changed changed it for Alex to be um not cured or whatever. But the thing about it is, Alex is, Alex technically still is cured. Mm. I want if you pay close attention in the film at the end when he's when um. The governor, or the, I think it's the prime minister. Um, um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the minister. Yeah. Yeah. When he came in, he goes, "Do you understand me, Alex? We need to be friends. Do you understand me, Alex?" And that also goes into a thing about um, Alex possibly becoming a politician, mm. because it, it, this is also a, um, if you want to kind of take a stretch, I might be reaching here, but this is also a redemption arc for a politician who was once a piece of garbage, but now reforms himself. He still does his evil deeds in the dark of the night, but he has the government to cover for him. Mm. You no, think but... about how Alex looked at it, and he goes, we're gonna have you on a good salary. If you wanna, is this, if you if this a salary that you think that you can be, that's comparable to you, you ask for it, you name it, and this will be your job. And then you think, what kind of job would Alex get so that's that's a salary that's good and comparable to what he can do and i was like a goddamn politician <laughs> if you take away the veneer of alex right put him in a good suit and have him cured at the, cured at the end right and put him in front of people and tell them about how horrible it was that the government did this but then the government did help them right so what does he do you institute an idea of Oh, the Drugs became cops. These are the perfect people to co become cops. Like, if you think about his buddies, them, these are the perfect people to become cops because uh, these co that was another thing that I picked up on was that the street gang ide ideology, right? It's very similar to the way police act, especially here in, in the U.S. Most of these cops are gang members. They don't tell you that. A lot of these guys are, are legit, blood in, blood out gang members. And 
if you look at how uh, Dem and um, I forgot the other guy's name, um, was it Georgie? Georgie, yes. Yes. Dem and Georgie, when they became, them becoming cops makes so much sense because it's like, who else would brutalize the people just for the, just for the fun of it, right? But under the law, under protective law. Mm. There's not, there's a thin line between a gangster and a cop. It's a real thin line. Both carry guns, but one is just upholded by Lady Justice. One, one is, and one's actions are infallible. That's the only difference. So ultimately, when you look at at the perspective of Alex being a politician and his buddies being, let's just say, alternate version of Clockwork Orange is Alex getting cured. His buddies still turn on him, but they still keep a good connection. They become cops, and then the next installment of the, of the movie or the next installment of the story is. Alex is covering up all of their rapes, their murders. They're doing as police as policemen. Mm. He's making sure they're getting off in trials. He's making sure that the lawyers paid off. Alex pulls the weight, and Alex still holds the power over his droves. Oh wow! That it all comes full circle then, yeah. And also, that would make a lot of sense too for Alex to take the job where he can now that he is cured from his cure he can now do as he wishes rape beat whoever he wants just for the hell of it and he has full protection especially since the government as the minister has proven are willing to do anything just to save their own ass yeah you know a little bit of that prince andrew type of type of feel to him you know mm-hmm. oh, God, i should say that too loud <laughs> we can edit that part out by the way no worries yeah, wow. So in a way, in, in a very like in a very sick, twisted, screwed up way, it is a happy ending for for everyone, for the government who basically yeah. can continue just basic, you know, cor- being corrupt and authoritarianism and Alex can go on and enjoy a bit of the old ultra violence. So it's a win-win situation. <laughs> just... And one more point to that whole that whole um, Clockwork Orange, the, the, the title, right? When it becomes mechanical. So he becomes a cog in the machine, ultimately. Like I said, he's a tool. So but he just becomes a bigger cog now. Instead of being that small piece of the system, now they can modify him and make him the big spark system. Make him an integral part of it. You know, he's making laws, he's writing laws, he's and they're listening to different things, you know. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I'm just saying, I mean, these are just, you know, obviously there wouldn't be a, a sequel to it, but these are just great uh, concepts you can bring to it, you know, so far as extending the thought. Mm-hmm. The possibilities. Yeah. How, yeah. Or how the cycle keeps going. Exactly, yeah. And um, you, you go first, thing. Oh. Yeah, yeah. One thing I was going to go off of too is like uh, I think it's interesting because I I forgot about this that actually Alex and I think the rest of the, the gang are actually only supposed to be like 15 years old. I think like they're just like teenagers, right? They're they're not adults either. But you view them in the movie. The, the actors they're all in their 20s, so you see them as grown men. But in the context of the film, they're actually basically children. I think that's kind of interesting because um, there is like that whole debate of like when. When at what age does a serious crime become like comparable to an adult who's committed the same crime? Like when should a teenager be tried the same way as an adult for the same crime? And so I think that's that's a huge debate today. I think like that's still such a big issue. Like with uh, like brain development and everything, brain uh, what 
age just the brain mature and everything but uh, to punish you know a child basically in that manner you know it says a lot about the, the society and the, the the rulers of course right like to uh, not see that there's like a, a way to sort of condition them in a, in a more appropriate way but instead sort of like the most harsh punishment possible reserved mm-hmm. for adults I think that's uh, something that I forgot about because I thought they were supposed to be like 18, 19 years old in the movie but they're actually children basically I think Alex is like 16 or 17 and the other the other droogs are um like 15 years old because he's yeah. the like it, yeah. it's, it's in it too, but you know he's the oldest. Mm, that's true, yeah. And yeah. also that that also reminds me of one of the most important themes in the film, which is how innocence can be used as a weapon. Because you know how Alex was able to gain the trust of the Mr. and Mrs. Alexander by being with his age, being a teenager, and how his friend was hurt, and the fact that him and the droogs, they are all dressed in white and, and it reminds me a bit as if they are sheep and what do you think of sheep? That, like they're innocent, they wouldn't hurt a fly they don't think that there's evil in the world and they use their innocence to their advantage which really shows that appearances can be deceiving and we should always never tr- blindly trust others because they are you know because of their age who, who, you know how many many of the world's greatest violent acts were committed by people who are very young exactly that's why yeah yeah exactly yeah, just, uh, and i also really like again Kudos to Kubrick's really, he has really great attention for detail. Even every shot, it has something, it serves a purpose in telling the story. Like, it really helps establish the world. Like, I noticed when Alex is walking home, notice that the graffiti, that we have, we have, like drawings of men with all kinds of sexual imagery, like with penises drawn all over and, and bare breasts. It... It's really, it really surreal for sure. Lots of sexual, I noticed there's lots of sexual imagery in A Clockwork Orange too, which really shows just how humanity has downgraded to the lowest common denominator. And if we pay close attention, outside of the, the aesthetics that Rick set up, um, a part of the aesthetic which I think is, is kind of, it can be separate, but I think it's just window dressing. Nothing really works. If you pay close attention to how Alex tried to get on the elevator and he looked in it, I'm like, dude, why would you even get on the elevator in the first place if the doors aren't even shutting properly? It's plants and stuff everywhere. You mentioned the graffiti. Like, this has become commonplace, but then for some weird reason, it still feels sanitized. Like, it feels like, um, what is it? An open air prison of sorts. Like, you know, prisons are very sanitized. Mm-hmm. Out in the world, you're free, but then everything is kind of like broken down, infrastructure's messed up. You notice when they walk through like certain um, like courtyards and stuff, like there's trash everywhere, there's bottles everywhere. And you clearly see that there's a homeless problem too. And it, it, it adds to, like you said, that aesthetic. But then we, but hey, 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 we got trash everywhere, but you can see boobs. You can see penis. You can, you can, you, you can pull, you can pull one real quick right now. If you got two to 10 minutes to spare, you know, it's, it's all, I know I'm 
I'm, no, I'm, I'm being candid about it, but if you look at the aesthetic of how Kubrick set up it being kind of trashy, right? But then you go into places of business and people's homes, they're very sanitized. And um, I think, and then that goes into like um, Soviet era um, building. Mm. Like it was still about that. I have an obsession with Soviet era building. We utilize Soviet era, era type building structures too in, in, in the West. If you look yeah. at any building that was built during the 1950s, everything was all the same because there were mostly German um, architects building most of this. Most of that, that very boxy, industrial uh, grade um, infrastructure, I have an obsession with it. That's why I love watching things about North Korea because they still have that aesthetic from Soviet er- era, um, Soviet area of, era of, of, of the world. Just everything is, is so ergonomic, right? And then going to London, London um, holds on to those those architectural standpoints even to this day. There's certain areas you go to they're still kind of retro, like they're modernized on the inside more or less, but they keep a semi-modern retro feel to them. And you go in, you're like, holy, holy hell, this is kind of nice, it's kind of refreshing, but it's like retro uh, futurism, which is the thing I have mm-hmm. love. So because Kubrick yeah. would keep that aesthetic beautiful for the time period right yes the movie is dated more or less right but then if you look at it objectively you're like hold on i can see how this is how someone can see the future mm-hmm. once again you don't see it as a um as a hard use of, of art artistic strokes but a very abstract lightweight strokes you have to be able to visualize it to a degree because even when you see the the bouncers at the club you see how they're dressed you see how they have them all white? Right? They're just standing there like this, and posed and poised. And then everything else around them outside is just tore up. But even the infrastructure of the 70s, just it, it, it's a character itself. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think, I, I don't know if Kubrick thought that far ahead, but damn it, I mean, the, 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 guy, the guy is almost like a genius with how he handled things. Mm-hmm. Even though he's a little fortunate as a director, uh, gene, most geniuses are harsh. <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like the, the brutalist structures, um, I've, I've always been interested by them. Like they're so uh, so ugly. They're they're so ugly. They're beautiful, right? There's like something charming about them, but they are so. It's like dehumanizing. Like you feel like you're like in a, like yeah, like a dystopia when mm-hmm. you're if you're walking around these buildings. They just look so un, uninviting and so cold. But at the same time, there's something beautiful about them, right? Uh, like you said, a lot of them are built actually here in um, Calgary as well, in the downtown, you notice it. It's bizarre because, like, Western country, like, kind of the conservative part of Canada, and yet there's always very, like, Soviet-era buildings in the downtown. But I think, like you said, like, it was um, also, I think, kind of the fear of uh, nuclear war, I think, that became, like, a pretty popular choice of uh, architecture to supposedly, like, protect itself from a nuclear fallout or whatever. Yeah, that's why... So, Shutter style. Yeah, exactly. So that's really interesting choice. And then also, um, I know the book and I think the movie as well, they use quite a bit of um, Russian slang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know this. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think is, uh, is Russian slang. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like British slang and Russian slang combined, which is really, uh-huh. I didn't notice it the first time, but then I thought about it more, I'm like, that wasn't an English word at all, that wasn't yeah, a British. Like, you, gotta, you, you gotta use a lot of context clues when you listen to them talk. Just like, um, when he's like, we're going in for the good old in and out, in and out, which if you were to translate that to like a Russian terminology, it might be something as quick as all uh, the bolta. Even though you're saying one word, it might mean in and out, in and out in Russian. You know, and that's the cool part about, like you said, just utilizing um, the Russian slang with it. That my assumption is that this is Britannia that conquered Russia during the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, let's just say this movie is set in 2010. We conquered the Russians as you know as a united front during the Cold the Cold War era, and now they're a part of our society. So which would well, they're a part of the United the United Kingdom society. So thus for language and, and um, the melting pot begins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Like if if you if you weren't paying attention, like I, I missed that and then I I researched more and I was like, oh wow. Yeah, some of that wasn't English at all, but you know, I have family in uh, Ireland and UK and I thought, you know, I thought I knew most of their slang, so I was kind of confused about a lot of these words, like what what are these words? But it makes sense now that yeah, they're trying to Makes I guess, yeah. Like Sounds almost Shakespearean in nature, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. even, even the way that they talk is kind of like an old English mixed with that that um, Russian slang. It, it's, oh, oh our, our, like they say art thou, but they say it in a very, um, uh, um, a very semi semantic way. It is mm-hmm. kind of weird. It's like, instead of it being poetic, more or less, it's still conversational, but still poetic nonetheless. And like I said, Kubrick basically set himself apart with that, personally. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And really, so many ways in this movie. Yeah. In his career too, at large. I mean, every film of his is just a massive statement. Oh, absolutely. And- <laughs> yeah. Like his films yeah. are just. Like, it, to me, it, it's always such an honor to watch a film by Stanley Kubrick because when you're watching a film by Stanley Kubrick, you're not watching a movie. You're watching something else. You're watching... It's like his films, they're very culturally significant. And the aesthetic, good Lord, the aesthetic in all of his movies, it's beautiful. It's like you're stepping into a painting. And it rem- that also had me thinking i i remember years ago there was a stanley kubrick museum filled with all these types of architectures and props from the movies one of my things to do in my bucket list i have to go visit that museum exactly in fact we all we can all go there definitely yeah. i didn't even know that existed <laughs> it's just most well. coronavirus plans to do it yeah i need to do it because just just that, just Stanley Kubrick's use of colors and palettes. Because um, me and Nick talked about the, the carpet, like the carpet from... Uh, um, the Shining, yeah, in the Overlook Hotel. That, that, that carpet itself is, like, just damn the wallpaper, but that carpet is, like, itself is an aesthetic. And then whenever you see other, like, films try to do the same thing, you 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 know you know exactly where they're, where they're going when, they, when you see it. Like, as soon yeah. as you go watch a movie... Where there's a long hallway and you see that argyle slash um, semi off-putting carpet, you're like, oh yeah, I know where that's from. Like, depending on who who does it, right? 
you know, they can pay, they always pay homage to Kubrick and Kubrick purposely utilizes certain detailing that most people, they were like, like say for instance, key grip is like, hey, we need to take this out. He's like, no, but it's, it's obstructing the shot. No, it's not. You just don't see what I see. And then they'll go past it. They're like, dude, it's, it's annoying. We need to take it out. No, we need it. And then you go back and you look at the, you look at the film, you're like, oh yeah, they need that. It's always like little pastiches, pastiches that he adds to every little, every little uh, tidbit of, of of the brain, just every every little bit. Just, I mean, I can go on forever about the aesthetic by itself. <laughs> like, yeah, these films are revolutionary. How do you think Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg started their interest in filmmaking? Because Kubrick was a huge, if not the biggest inspiration for them to start their career in filmmaking. Like, even though Kubrick passed away and is no longer with us, his impact, his influence has really left left its shadow on all future up-and-coming filmmakers, such as ourselves, of course. I'm like, I mean, yeah, like you see uh, David Bowie, I think he, one of his tours, I think he was like super influenced by uh, Clockwork Orange. Like he just, the, the entire, I think like concert stage and everything, and maybe even the album was kind of like based on Clockwork Orange. And then like, uh, I mean, like music videos from the band Blur, one of their videos, one of their videos like pretty much the exact, like, like it's the straight up sort of homage to it, to uh, one of the most famous scenes in Clockwork Orange. So I mean, like, Beyond those things, you could probably find hundreds of other of examples in music and, and art that have been just massive influences mm. uh, coming from A Clockwork Orange and Kubrick. So, oh yeah, definitely. A of, yeah, a lot of the artists, a lot, a lot of um, a lot of the artists that I'm into, they're a lot of underground artists. They're hip hop artists. Yeah. One, specific, one group specifically uh, called Flatbush Zombies. These oh. guys are big Stanley Kubrick fans. I'm talking about big stand. Like you can, you hear it in their music. You hear like even though their subject matter may not necessarily be Kubrick uh, heavy, but you feel the Stanley Kubrick influences in their music. They actually have a joint group with a group called the Underachievers. Called their group, their their combination group is called Clockwork Indigo. Oh, yes. wow! <laughs> and, and if you listen to and if you listen to the music, uh, the, the producer of the group, Eric the Architect. Uh, which is one of my biggest inspirations um, to I aspire to be as great as he is. He's barely pushing 30 and is a great artist and he's so underrated. You can hear Stanley Kubrick's sound design in his in his music, which is so like, yeah, but, I mean, and this is this is hip hop and, uh, and it's, it's underappreciated. It's very underappreciated. And me, myself, I mean, I'm influenced by Kubrick as a writer with just being able to write the way that I'm, I'm influenced by Kubrick in the sense of just, um, I'm influenced by a lot of things, but Kubrick is one of those ones that's him and Tarantino, you know, because I, I, I firmly believe that Tarantino is a child of Kubrick. Like the the, the closest thing to our generation's Kubrick, he's a, the direct line of Kubrick. And just in that same instance of being an artist and being, I'm, I'm writing rap songs, but if you apply it to a Stanley Kubrick film, you'd be like, oh damn, that fits. And that's 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 and that's how you want to be able to use your music. It's not the influence is not because of what you say. It's how you can take it and apply it to a film. How you can take it and apply it to a situation. You know, that's from this, from this uh director. 
Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so cool. I mean, like the how we influence each other in, in culture and society is it's pretty amazing, especially as we evolve and just like just the music evolves, the the artistic works evolve, and how everything is just so interconnected and. You can take influences from like everywhere. Create something unique and original, but it could be a combination of four or five uh, distinct things, and it's just it's exciting. Like it's exciting as a creator. There's unlimited freedom, basically. But a lot of it is just, it's going to be based on what you've loved and what you've really uh, what's made the biggest impact on you. I think will always translate into what you do. So it's, it's pretty beautiful, actually. Like how we we have that power and that uh, connection as people, right? Like we're all sort of channeling similar or maybe not similar but bouncing off of off of each other even if we don't realize so absolutely it's pretty incredible i wanted to ask you guys a question though if it, if it was privy of me to be able to do so for sure um what specific i what, what specific um concepts from kubrick do you guys actually feel that you both of you are personally influenced from mm-hmm. like like specific styles like it doesn't have to necessarily be you know the overarching thing but just those little tidbits that that you know impact you as you know um as creatives mm. that's a very good that's question, a great question. Uh, you first dane uh I, I would well i would say probably sort of maybe like the cynicism right like the uh i, I i've written like a few uh screenplays done a few short films and i i'm also a musician i uh, write lyrics and perform my own lyrics so like I think um, very just very amateur right now I'm still in the beginnings of what I do but um, yeah I, I would say <laughs> I would say like the sort of like cynicism of like a lot of that is translated I think into my work like I, I do kind of I feel like I have to make a point about society and whatever I make I have to question the status quo and I have to sort of um kind of just the angst, right? The angst uh, for where we are in the modern world. I think that's really impacted me and how I how I produce things. I tend to gravitate toward that sort of uh, uh, discomfort in this sort of modern world and question what we're doing and, and how it's healthy for us, I guess. That's kind of what I would get most from Kubrick films. Mm, okay. It's really what interesting like, well, for me, there are many factors, but one that comes to my mind would have to be the artistic value, like more like the aesthetic, because Stanley Kubrick's, his, his films, they, when you're looking at a film of his, you are looking at something, something that you have never seen before. And that is what I want aim, aim to achieve, to create something unique, something that just like opens the eyes of audiences to something new, something unique, something that they have never experienced before in their life. A good example of this would be 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is probably my favorite Kubrick film. Like this film is was it was way ahead of its time. The visuals it's just very every visual you see is iconic it's if film ever had a museum i'd see 2001 a space odyssey to be way way like the top painting in that museum that's what i want to do because when i watch a movie artistic value is something that draws me to the film it just it, it almost like hypnotizes me and i want to create that same effect invoke that same effect to all future audience members for my future films 
Not many people actually have that perspective when they look at film. People look at film like one or two ways. They is either, oh, that's a popcorn film. Oh, that's a very serious film. Oh, that's a, this. nobody actually talks about the draw of a film. Like for instance, a movie that got panned but was still generally well received was a movie Us. And Jordan Peele, I love his aesthetic. I like. Like I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're just doing that because he's a black director and he's getting he's getting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, 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 no. Look at the man's aesthetic. Look at how he filmed. Like, let's take the script out. Turn, turn the movie off. I mean, we'll turn the sound off and just look at how it filmed. Look at every angle of the camera, and I, I was pulled in by the aesthetic by itself. You know, even and even though the movie Us got panned. You know, I'm pulled in by this thing. So you having that perspective on Kubrick's, you know, just just how it, how something draws you in, and how it, how it how that influences you. That's that's very beautiful and unique because not many people have that that forethought. It's kind of like, eh, okay, whatever, you know. Mm. And people enjoy film. You know, we you know we thoroughly enjoy film regardless of what a critic says. Exactly. Critic, words are. Our, our dog meets us. It's like whatever, because <laughs> we rather experience it ourselves and have our own take on it. Because you know, I think the biggest issue is what I call um, hyper objectivity causes people to not have fun. Yeah, I agree with that. And Kubrick, I think if Kubrick were to come out today, um, I don't know if I would say that he would he wouldn't make a splash. But he would be so underwritten that once he died, then people would go back and like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. I was like, no, it was great then. You just did not acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Uber was yeah. great while he was here, which I couldn't say the same if he were, you know, 40 years younger and, and starting now. Kubrick, like, people look at Kubrick like he's crazy, but real film buffs would be like, dude, are you guys not seeing what he's doing? Exactly. Are you, Thank are you. you <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess my influence is, like I said before, is just with my music, just being kind of um, very kind of bleak, but still oh, like witty, witty, but still oblique about a lot of stuff. Like, eh, uh, okay, do I dare open this can of worms? Okay, I'm opening the can of worms. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that's, that's actually, to your point, yeah, that's, first off, that's a really really amazing point finally some uh, more people who get it yeah like kubrick's films some are sometimes at the very beginning they were misunderstood like when he was alive his films a clockwork orange especially it had its fair share of controversy and a bit of mixed and negative reviews but as time passed it was they received reevaluations, and now they are considered to be just hot stuff yeah, and I think with time, probably they will be even more well received. I think as the years go on, goes on, go on, uh, because I'm still surprised by the general sort of like it's a critically acclaimed movie, but there is some sort of like polarization at some level. I don't know with the Clockwork Orange, like it's not. It, yeah, like you said, it took it took a long time before it was like recognized by you know like large institutes and everything. So I think over time it'll just continue to be sort of. Uh, like a lot of great masterpieces, just more, more and more appreciated with the uh, passing of time. I think mm-hmm, yeah. that's the case yeah. with for so long, right? Exactly, yeah. and it, and also like 
A Clockwork Orange for all its excessive violence and gratuitous nudity. It was all necessary because it really films all films they tell us things that we would normally get on a regular daily basis and we can, we are a sen some people can be sensitive and that that is perfectly fine but we also can't be we can't always be pandering to others like this world is not a fairy tale where you will meet your prince charming and then all is well <laughs> like we need to know like society is dark and brutal and sometimes we need to know we need to see what is the darkness in our world so that when the time comes we can face the darkness <laughs> and with that said, it's time. What is your guys' favorite scenes from A Clockwork Orange? Let's start with you, Rico. Oh, man. <laughs> I was waiting for this one. All right, there are two scenes. And the reason why I, I'm picking these two scenes is because they bookend each other. When Alex first um, is uh, being talked to in the... Um, when he's being humiliated, right? When they're doing the demonstration. Remember when the priest got up and was like, this boy has been, you know, he gave the diatribe about him losing his free will. He's not, he's not, he's, this is not a cure. Now, how is it that the morality, which very, very so seldomly is coming from a priest, coming from a priest. Now, I want you to, I want you to pay close attention to that. And then, understand when they both had their hands on his shoulders, right? This is when you recognize that Alex is a tool. Because even the priest doesn't have good intentions to keep Alex right. He's telling him what's right about morality, but he is only doing it from the perspective of, we're going to give you this religion instead of giving you, you know, a good understanding of psychology, right? And then you got this, this governor or this, this, um, this um, Yes, it's minister, yeah. Yeah, basically this um this magistrate, minister, whatever, this governor, he's basically like, Well, no, he the boy is cured and they both got their hands on him. They both they both have nefarious reasoning, right? Now, even though the priest is the lesser the lesser evil, once again, they are still utilizing him as a tool because he wants to have Alex be his personal um his personal uh candle boy his personal mm -hmm. uh his personal um errand boy within the church at the at, at the prison and then also this governor wants to use alex as a propaganda tool at the very end when the and, and this is the bookend part when he said we're friends right friends have to look out for each other I scratch, basically, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I'll let you do whatever you want as long as you do what I tell you to. You always make sure you keep your dogs on a short leash. What is Alex about to become? He's about to become an attack dog for him in the for publicity because the, the writer had every right to do Alex the way he did him. And he was like, that man is gone. He's far away where he can't hurt you anymore. But Alex is the one that wronged him. He killed his wife. He raped his wife. But you see, this governor doesn't care about that. The governor knows what Alex done, has done. And it books in with that whole idea of 
Yeah, my boy, you're going to be my tool. Ultimately, and the reason that's why I said the reason why these two scenes book in each other is because at the end, what does Alex see? Him having the good old show in the snow. Mm-hmm. Well, for him. He was cured, all right. I was cured, all right. Really good choice, yeah. Like, wow, wow, yeah, yeah. Nice, we go nice. <laughs> your turn, Dane. What is your favorite scene? Oh, wow. Yes, to pick a favorite scene is really difficult, but um, maybe I'll start off with some honorable mentions because I feel like I have to. So probably uh, the car scene, the, the driving scene. Um, I, I don't know how else to refer to it, but uh, yeah, I, I, I just love how, like, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's like a green screen. And it's done in the studio, but it's, it doesn't matter. Like the, the atmosphere of it, and just the emotion of the, the four of them in the, in the vehicle, I think it's just hilarious. Like the uh, the car is just—I I don't know what type of car it is. I don't think it's a real vehicle at all. I think it's like a concept vehicle. But it's just there's something about it. It feels so. This is like the most kind of uh, surreal. One of the most surreal feelings in the movie is this. This is almost like—is this actually happening? Like the whole the whole movie is like no special effects mm-hmm. and then this this is not like good special effects but it's like kind of cheesy but it's at the same time so charming and just so like it, it's sort of like a comic relief and i think you need comic relief in oh series yeah it, it makes it even just it makes the darker scenes darker and it makes the sort of like like that funny moment even just uh, you appreciate it more so i love that scene um probably the intro as well just because it's iconic, I mean, how could you ever, like, duplicate this type of scene? The slow pan out, the three of them, sorry, four of them, the glass of milk, and, yeah, the, the just the creepiness of the room. Uh, it's just, it's just so, it's, it's disturbing, but I love it. Um, if I could channel some of that energy into a scene once in my life that I produce, I'd be super happy if I could get anywhere close to that. <laughs> and uh, number one, probably either the flat the flat block marina scene or the aversion therapy scene, one or the other. Um, the flat block, flat block marina scene, it's really one of those scenes where you just see how sadistic they are to each other, right? And you know that they're going to be as sadistic to other people as they are with each other. And it's, it's really disturbing, but at the same time, there is that, uh, it's, it's such a beautiful scene set to, set to music. Mm-hmm. The, um, the scenery, like the lake and the, the architecture, it's gorgeous, like it's absolutely gorgeous, but it is so, so, so dark at the same time. Um, and the aversion therapy scene, I mean, like it's, that's just the, that's just like the, pinnacle I think of the whole movie right? mm. it's just the one thing that will always stick with you and the thing you'll always remember is the, the close up eye and everything and oh yeah just the terror in that scene that you feel as a viewer as well and you'll never forget about it so mm. <laughs> oh well, yeah you might never want to make the theme even more unnerving, that was actually a real doctor pouring drops into Malcolm McDowell's eyes, which is why as a result he has like some kind of, Malcolm McDowell has very like sensitivity to things put, being dropped in his eye to this day, so. Ugh, oh, I went to. There's cornea, a 
or something like that. It said um, either his eyelid or his cornea got smaller from that. Mm, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm. brutal. Mm. And <laughs> suffered for his art. Yeah. Probably. And what about you, Nick? Me? Yeah. Well, this is a scene that. It, I don't. I wouldn't consider it my favorite scene, but one that is just I find very intriguing, similar to the lake scene, which is where the singing in the rain scene, because uh, that is it's very a very disturbing moment, but still, that is the one that really stood out to me the most. Like weekend from the the fact that it was improvised, the the soundtrack dissonance. You know how. A happy song is playing in a very unhappy moment, an understatement, by the way. And even the colors in the scene, notice how the wife she's wearing, was wearing anyway, red, and Alex and his droogies are all dressed in white, which is like, if you can compare them to sheep, red is usually associated with wolves, with a predator, and now it's all being reversed with the sheeps assaulting the wolf. Like, it's very, it's very ironic, and I love good irony in a film. And after hearing that singing in the rain, I don't think none of us will ever hear it the same way again. Uh, the movie too, by the way, actually likes singing in the rain, but I just love how they kind of obviously sort of poked fun at it, I think, in a way. Like, it was sort of the, the glamorous Hollywood era that it's like the golden era but now it's being kind of perverted so mm -hmm. i think that was, that was great yeah. and then really and subverting like in the fact you brought up the sheep attacking the wolf but i was like yes yeah, so, like i didn't even think about that but i was like yes yeah, stanley kubrick is good at subverting the the, the subject like you talk about um uh what is it um who was the dude that did the fly? The remake. Uh, uh, David Cronenberg. Yeah, I, I think I think um, I think Stanley Kubrick was able to do a, a literary Cronenberg with without he filmed the scene. Oh yeah, and that, and that and that scene, the singing in the rain scene, it really highlights one of the film's main topics, which is the ultra violence and free will. How Alex and his droogies were doing this way before they, or rather, Alex was before he was brainwashed. It really sh establishes what kind of character he is. It really shows that Alex has and will always be a bad seed. Man. Yeah. Great choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, anybody can. I mean, it's like you could pick the iconic scenes just because they're iconic, because everybody can take notes to them. But to be able to take that perspective, I, I didn't even think about it like that. I was like, I was like, whoa! Like, what did you say? I was like, I was like, holy shit! Yeah, yeah, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> I mean, and it goes into that thing of and what you highlighted on before Nick, about the aesthetic cap thing. For the fact that you were able to even pick that, put the, pick that out of it, I was like, oh man, that that went on my head, man. I, you know, because it's hard for me to watch that scene and and not cringe. I'm just like, oh lord, I gotta yeah. look away. Uh, <laughs> grown man, still, I still have to look away, like, oh lord. This definitely Yeah, and 
unfortunately that is all the time we have left for today's episode we we really covered so much for just one movie didn't we Yes, indeed. It's worth it, though. It's mm-hmm. worth it. Yes, yes. I knew. Like, yeah. <laughs> many more episodes to come with you as well, Rico. We look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you and you and Emmanuel are friends, right? Yeah, man. With the high school too. That's awesome. That's Ten years. Awesome. Well, actually, fourteen years in the game. I've been knowing that brother, man. Ooh. Wow. Congrats, man. I can't wait to see. Have you guys made anything together yet? Like, yeah, uh, we have, we have an uh, episode of, um, on my podcast called XRRX, Dimes, Rhymes, and Remedy. It's, um, I'll send you a link to it. Uh, I am tracking on my podcast because I've been working on so much music. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I've been working on just music, man. I, I just really track. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm discombobulated, but I'm going to start uh, on uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays and posting on Fridays. Nice. Nice. That's nice. the fluck, man. That's the fluck. Definitely link us to that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I would love to have you guys on for um, Talk talk Film. Oh. oh, yeah. Like, whoever I have on, we just talk, we talk, we just talk about anything. I mean, it, I kind of shoot from the, I shoot from the hip. <laughs> We'd love to. We'd very much love to. to Definitely. Same here. And yeah, you know, music and everything. Nice. Yeah, count us in. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And with all that said and done, this has been Sin City. Live for CMRU.ca. I'm Nick Manessis. This is Dan McLean. Thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you have a great weekend. Yes. Thanks to our guest, Rico T. Allen, coming in from Houston, Texas. Have a great weekend, everyone. Yes. See you guys soon. Bye, guys. Viddy well, brothers. Viddy well. <laughs>